Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all and equipping, especially for those who are preparing sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks, uh, whether they're pastors, teachers, uh, what have you, anyone who has been entrusted as a bearer of the Word of God for the people of God. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Ken Shank. He is the VP of Innovation and Enrollment at Houghton College and a uh, old friend and professor and colleague and uh, supervisor of mine uh, for decades. Uh, Ken and I go way back and he is one of my uh, beloved teachers and I love having him on the show. We always have fun uh, geeking out together. Um, this week's text is Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 36 through 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 through 41. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show along so that others may benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Ken Shane. So we pick up uh, at verse 36. Peter continues, um, Surely, therefore, let the whole house of Israel know that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Verse 36. And having heard this, they were pierced to their heart. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, What should we do, men and women, brothers and sisters? Verse 38, and Peter responded to them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For to you is this promise, and to your children, and to all those who are far off, as many as should call our God Lord, the Lord our God, verse 40. And with many other words, he was testifying and he was exhorting them saying, be saved from this crooked generation. Therefore, they received his word, as many as received his word were baptized and were added on that day about 3,000. The word of the Lord. Well, let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for this day which you have made. Please grant us the grace to rejoice and be glad in it. Father, we give you thanks also for this hour to which we have been sent with the gift and task of studying uh, the word of God as it has been handed down to us. We ask that we ourselves would be empowered by your grace to hear what the words have to say, to hear uh, the word speaking and piercing through like the two-edged sword that your living word is, as it is borne witness to and 
moves with and through, in, with, and under these written words. And Father, we give you thanks for this moment in which you yourself are present. We ask that you would give us the grace to be aware of your presence in the moments to come. And we ask this not only for our own sakes, Ken and I, but for all those who are listening in. They too may be aware of your presence and guided by your spirit to receive and hand on the word of God. Ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Awesome. So what jumps out at you afresh? Of course, you've seen this text again and again and again, but as we zoom in on this little portion right at the, uh, the response to Peter's sermon here, what, uh, what, what grabs your attention today? Well, of course, um, you know, you asked me, you asked me what part of this chapter piqued my interest the most. And of course, this is, this, I, I responded that this section is very interesting to me because uh, I have a history with this, uh, this section. Oh, you uh, do. Um, what I mean is this is a very interesting section and in some respects, very controversial uh, given my Wesleyan uh, heritage. Ah. Um, and so anyway, there, there are two verses here. Um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you're like this, but in terms of biblical theology, there are two verses here that are very large in the word cloud of, of my biblical theology. I hear you mean. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So like verse 35, uh, is a very key text, uh, Christologically, uh, because it seems to me one way of, well, I can tell you that one way of taking it is that Jesus is appointed Lord and Christ at his resurrection. God yeah. has, so because the verse immediately pre- preceding is talking about him sitting, his exaltation, his seated, he has seated at the right, you know, at the right hand, therefore. Ascending into heaven in 34. Yeah. yeah. And sitting at the right hand, therefore God has made him Lord in Christ. And so. Uh, especially in James Dunn's work, uh, Christology in the Unmaking and so forth, this is a key text in which he argues that the focus of Jesus getting these royal titles is at his exaltation. He is Lord, he is Lord, he is risen from the dead and he is Lord. Yeah. Uh, Philippians, therefore God has super exalted him with the yes. name above every name, Jesus Christ is Lord. If you If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. See the connection between the lordship of Jesus in these the resurrection deaths and the resurrection exaltation. So verse 34, uh, 36, I mean, is a, um, is a key text in Christologic, biblical theology, Christological debates as to the locus. Uh, and that's, that's not to say that he wasn't Lord before, but it's to say that the early church saw something special in relation to his exaltation, uh, Romans one three. Yeah, I was getting um, ready to mention Romans one three as parallel. And, yeah, and declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection uh, from from the dead. So, so for, verse thirty six is a is a a big a big deal in uh, discussions of biblical Christology. Anyway, yeah, well, and it's, it's a, up enough. Yeah, no, and it's it's one of these fun questions about Acts. You know, where someone like the author of Luke Acts is operating in p- most likely a later period. And it's interesting. It's even, it's, it's not, it's even possible 
I mean, this would be hard to def- to defend absolutely, but it's not implausible that that Luke himself is attuned to some of the more uh, to the some of the Christological developments that come later. But it may very well be that that he himself is not even unaware of the quote unquote primitive character of this language, and leaves it be because it, it captures the language of the early days, just like the opening chapters of Luke. Uh, the Gospel of Luke feel very much like this kind of like these prophetic narratives that would kind of fit. You, you could grasp what's going on in the opening chapters, even if you weren't uh, committed to the whole Christian narrative. It has a very kind of Jewish vibe to it. So, I mean, in other words, there's the question of the early Jerusalem Christianity's Christology. There's the question of later Gentile Christian Christology. There's the question of Luke's own Christology and Peter's Christology. And these are not all identical, right? Uh, and Luke may, may himself be not completely unself-aware of these uh, layers. I don't and know counter, how you feel about that. but A counter, a counter to, uh, to that timing is um, that in the, in the birth narrative of Luke, uh, uh, talk, he, is, he will be called the son of the most I forget exactly the phrasing. Yeah. Um, so um, some might argue, and again, I don't see these as mutually exclusive. So uh, you know, the coherence of the New Testament falls apart if they have to be mutually exclusive. I, I, so I'm with you deeply in in taking this as my starting point. I think you need to work logically backwards from resurrection. You know, because if you pick it up from Christmas forward, then resurrection seems like this kind of overkill moment at the end. Whereas like if you start from resurrection and work backwards, then you see all of that as anticipations of what is revealed for all, you know, it, it kind of matters which end of the stick you pick up, you know? Yeah. And, and again, I'm not, um, we're all on a journey. And uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, I reserve the right to change my impression uh, daily, but um uh, I've, I've spoken in the past about Jesus being the heir apparent uh, prior to the resurrection mm. and then him being in, enthroned and installed as king at the right hand of God after his resurrection and exaltation. Again, I'm, my particular positions probably aren't real popular right now. So I'm, I'm giving you things that were very, very common to say in the 1970s. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So have these kind of become uh, passe as some of as some other uh, points of view have come into play, or is it just the Christology is not as hot anymore in New Testament scholarship? No, I would say I would say that um, that that uh, again, from my perspective, we're going through a phase um, where the kinds of uh, so. What again? Done. Probably is not real popular these days. Most people never even heard of him. Probably, but um, what I appreciated about Dunn was his attention to detail. Mm-hmm. So to note here, God has made him Lord in Christ. Immediately following yeah. a statement of the resurrection and exaltation, and this is not just the only place. I mean, Acts thirteen thirty three does the same thing with the title Son of God, uh, and so. Um, to me, there's a there's a detail here, and an, an inductive an inductive uh, method in play 
um, that I, I feel like actually, and I'm, I'm, I'm indicting uh, PhDs in New Testament right now. I feel like there's, there's not a real, um, that, that we've lost a little bit of that attention to, to detail um, in, among a, a lot of current New Testament scholars. So I'm, I'm predicting it'll come back. But right now, there's uh, under the influence of Richard Balcom and, um, and some others, I, I think that there's some fast and loose with historical interpretation on some of these passages. I get, it could be wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, you, uh, you planted some seeds when I, of course, I took Acts with you, uh, in, if you recall, back in, uh, in college in the 90s, and, and then took Hebrews with you the year after that. And both Acts and Hebrews as just texts, they're the stories that they're the story, uh, the kind of cosmic and covenantal stories that they're telling um, hinge on the, I'll just say the exaltation of Jesus, which is a complex of resurrection and ascension and, you know, yeah. and anticipating what's coming. Yeah. And that, that has just a deep impact on me, Ken. I don't know if I've ever made that. Well, I mean, you could maybe guess, or maybe you were too humble to notice that I like went on and wrote a dissertation on resurrection. So it's kind of like, for me, that kind of early on note, realizing that the center of gravity in the New Testament is around the exaltation of Jesus, that that's sort of operative in almost an explicit way in almost every chapter of the New Testament. You know, again, I experienced it first with the sermons and acts and and the, the kind of logic of Hebrews and the kind of more GB cared way of reading the opening chapter of, of Hebrews and just the whole book of Hebrews makes sense to me more if we center there rather than a kind of Johannine incarnational kind of reading. Although I've actually moved towards even jo- John makes more sense on these terms as well, but uh, uh, though he does have a kind of man from heaven kind of thing going on. I, in many ways, John is best read actually as an attempt to kind of have both of these up and a kind of multiple Christologies are at work in John. I think maybe you don't agree, but I think John himself is kind of trying to navigate these different um, trajectories rather than be presenting one kind of singular point of view that can be contrasted with this more Lucan and Pauline way of speaking. Anyway, I just wanted to say, like, at least from the own history of my, like you're saying, everyone's on a journey. So, I mean, my journey has been one in which, like, I've been always driven by exegetical concerns, even though my training is in systematic theology. I've always wanted to kind of think through the conceptual implications of exegetical insights. Does that make sense? So, I kind yeah. of have the exegetical insight, and then I kind of work through, okay, what, what does this actually do to our doctrine of the Trinity, to our doctrine of incarnation, all these kinds of things? Um, and I've worked all that out, but I've spent a lot of time on it. And, of course, now it's kind of all full, coming full circle, and I'm kind of not really as interested in the systematic questions as much as I used to be. And I'm just back to the texts, preaching, preaching the text. And this podcast is my kind of return to man of one book kind of approach to life. But well, you, you raise a, I, I, you raise, I think a question that I have, and that is, or not a question I have, but attention. If can, can we lose the significance of the resurrection in the incarnation? If you know, if you know what I'm saying, yeah. is it possible to so focus on the incarnation that the resurrection isn't that big of a deal, or maybe maybe the the atonement becomes the big deal, and the resurrection 
is is not as big of a deal. Um, I, I'm not sure. Well, it happens um, in Anzone. So, I mean, it does happen in the in the Western tradition. This kind of sidelining of not belief in resurrection, but in its soteriological function. We don't know what it does. So we fight and defend its historicity and try to prove that it happened. And I always kind of like to joke that if you spend a lot of time trying to prove that something happened, maybe you forgot what it was for. And so that's the only thing worth talking about is that it did happen because just the sheer fact of it is the only thing left is, oh, we believe it happened. You know, I, we don't know why it matters. Cause if you know why something matters, then you can kind of take for granted that it, it that it is. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's uh, totally fair uh, to, to, to apologists uh, who defend the truth of the resurrection. But, but I think if you don't know what something means, it, it, you know, you can kind of fight till you're blue in the face uh, to talk about why it's true. But, you know, if something's true, but doesn't, mean anything and and it's so clear here i know we're just talking about verse 36 we'll take a break in a second to do the rest of them but i mean it's so clear here what the resurrection of jesus means to peter in this sermon it means this man who you crucified is lord and christ resurrection is the act of god rendering this man who for everything else is telling us he's not lord and messiah is in fact lord and messiah and of course, following through on the insight that that means he probably was the whole time. Well, of course, that's what the gospels are kind of doing. Uh, but it's f- through the the lens of the 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 light that's cast back from Easter back onto the story, and knowing what it means, then all of a sudden now I know what's at stake, why it matters. You know, it's now the resurrection scratching an itch. You know, uh, <laughs> it's, it's telling us who Jesus is more than any other event. You know. Then there's also, uh, you know, you think of um, that, uh, of course, we have hindsight because we we have the Bible, we have the creeds, we have 2,000 years of Christian reflection. You know, the disciples were living the story in real time. And uh, I've long long at least thought that, that, that both the death and resurrection of Jesus were surprising to them, shouldn't have been but that they weren't expecting his death. And then they certainly weren't expecting his resurrection. <laughs> right. so, you know, so there's, the, there's a, a sense in which, in terms of the way they experienced Jesus, yes. the resurrection, not the incarnation, but the resurrection was where, where um, his Lord, well, of course, they, they believed he was the Christ. But even Peter, it's near the end of his earthly ministry that Peter first really confesses him as the Christ, at least in, in the synoptics. Um, they're on their way to Jerusalem, uh, yeah, practically. When Peter, who do people say I am? And Peter says, "You're the Christ." So, so I think historically, the early Christians experienced the resurrection as the first, you know, kind of. Um, uh, we talk about the death first, but I mean, as the mo- first, the first moment in their Christology. Well, that's not true. Um, you know what I'm saying, though. Beyond beyond him as a possible Messiah, as they understood Messiah. The first real upgrade to what they understand a Messiah is arguably comes at the resurrection. Yeah, well, it had to be the starting point for them, even if there were uh, inklings along the way, because all the all the all the confet, like you say, even Peter's confession of Christ, if he died and wasn't raised, well, Peter was just wrong. I mean, that's that's the at least that's the plot of the story. The plot of the story presumes that um, that. Uh, you know, that they, they got it wrong. 
if th- this this is the vindication, this is the act that God does that approves and says yes, the claims that this man made were actually not delusions, the truth. And yeah, yeah no, I think that's crucial. I, I think that's a great place to start. I think we should take a quick break and come back and maybe talk about the other passage yeah. here. You said that's a real key one. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm your host, John Drury, and I'm here with uh, Ken Shank, uh, one of my favorite guests to have on, and uh, my one of my first and most uh, crucial teachers of exegesis, and who I already mentioned, I studied Acts with him and learned how to do Acts. Inter- so don't burn him, John at so. the stake, burn me at the ah, stake. There you go. Well, no, yeah. Or both of us together, I suppose. But So we kind of did some... Uh, observing in some interpretive squabbles around 36. Let's just do the same now with uh, the remainder of the passage. You said there was a kind of second verse. I, I, I'm guessing it's the right. same thing I'm thinking 38. of. But yeah. 38 is uh, is big in my own story. Uh, repent, so how so? Repent, let each of you be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So I grew up thinking of receiving the Holy Spirit as a a separate experience from coming to Christ in the first place. So you come to Christ, um, and then later, you, when you're entirely sanctified, you receive the Holy Spirit. That's the way I grew up hearing this text. Hmm. Um, I gained a little nuance on it, uh, I think probably in college, where um, my theology professors would have made a distinction between maybe receiving the Holy Spirit when you come to Christ and then being entirely filled with the Holy Spirit uh, subsequently. So um, I now I now pretty much see the Book of Acts as, as speaking of, of of an initial fill, filling with the Spirit when you come to Christ. You could be filled more than once. You know, there's in chapter four they're filled another yeah. time, so that being filled with the Holy Spirit is a repeatable uh, experience, especially as you face uh, particular uh, challenges. Uh, but and again, I'll, John, feel free to 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 uh, disagree, um, but. I felt like growing up in Wesleyan circles, so much of a focus was put on an entire sanctification event of the Spirit that I heard almost nothing about the role of the Spirit in coming to Christ in the first place. And in retrospect, uh, I see that all over Paul's writings. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Holy Spirit as the down payment that guarantees our inheritance. The Holy Spirit as the seal of of God's ownership uh, over us. If uh, Romans eight, if somebody doesn't have the Spirit, they're not even Christ's. They don't belong. They're not His. And so uh, this verse is. So I, I I wrote a I wrote a honors project in college, in which I argued the older version of what I said, and then in seminary I became convinced that in fact these things all go together as a initial kind of uh, at least if you're an adult a kind of initial complex of things that involve coming to Christ, that that um, water baptism is part of the mix, uh, repentance is a precursor, but that the real moment of entering the people of God in in this text is the receiving of the, the Holy Spirit. Anyway, so this is a very important and controversial verse um, in in uh, Wesleyan world. I don't know what you, th- what do you think, John? Yeah, well, I mean, the, and of course the, there's a, these these are not totally separated because of the holiness 
I was going to think of the the oneness Pentecostal tradition and the sure. emphasis on the name of Jesus that's brought up here. And that's not a totally separate matter, right? Because the Pentecostal movement is a development out of the holiness movement and its language of baptism of the Holy Spirit and this kind of uh, emerging sense of, you know, the signs and wonders that would accompany um, that initial infilling of the Spirit. And and I, I struggle so much because I am fully on board with a interpretation of acts that there's this kind of just complex of uh, conversion. There's the kind of constituent elements of conversion that aren't always in the exact same sequence, but are all sort of tied together. And that seems to me just like spot on. I, I don't think a interpretations of acts that try to kind of introduce some kind of like logical ordo salutis, like a, an order of salvation. I think you're just, honestly, I think they're, uh, they're a genre mistake, right? They're, they're just kind of mistaking the kind of text that's in front of us as not, as not inviting the, that exact kind of splicing. I'm not saying we shouldn't pay attention to the detail, but to, to presume that Peter's language is intended as a kind of sequence you know, of, uh, of an unfolding of here's the rest of your story, right? It just, it's the moment is clearly, what do we do right now? Um, and then, like you say, chapter four, referencing the spirit, uh, chapter 10 with Cornelius, the spirit coming before baptism, yeah. right? So the sequence Primarian. can get disrupted precisely in order to, with the, the disruptions in the sequence are themselves instructive. It's almost, um, and like, I can't help but think about when you speak of the spirit kind of coming upon later, I wonder it's even possible if every reference in acts that seems like some sort of like second wave of the movement of the spirit would actually fit in Luke and acts Luke and style. Who's very more than perhaps any of the writers, although there's some allusion in, in revelation too, but more than almost any of the writers, he seems very explicitly tapped into a kind of prophetic narrative. You know, you think of like the former prophets in the, in the, you know, first second Samuel, first second Kings, right? Like uh, sometimes the spirit just comes on people and they do stuff, right? It's this kind of prophetic vision of the Christian world that again is not rejected in other parts of the New Testament canon, but clearly not emphasized and not p- placed out in an explicit way, though there's hints here and there. Uh, Paul's gifts lists and stuff like that seem to indicate that, that, that the, the prophetic was around. And it seems to me that that kind of can account for all of these sort of secondary moments. Now, I've said all that, and then I want to just kind of like throw in the little wrench, which is, have we overcorrected into a kind of sort of like Baptist-style uh, singularity where like everything that happens is right at the beginning. Right. And then it's all just kind of keeping it going. Uh, I do, I do have some uh, sort of Wesleyan worries that, that retain. And that's when the Johannine literature becomes really important because the, and there's a reason why someone like Wesley loved first John, that was in many ways, his canon within a canon. And because the Johannine literature really emphasizes people who believe who Jesus, I mean, Jesus says some really mean things to people who are said to believe in him uh, in the gospels. Right. And, 
and first John has these, and all the emphasis on abide has to do with the ongoing faithfulness of the Christian and the growth in grace and the becoming an overcomer. So I think there is a place for that. I don't think it's an ax is what I'm trying to say. Like, I feel like there's a place for that, that notion of the, the ongoing growth in grace and the, the work of the spirit in that while at the same time recognizing that, man, I just don't think that you're going to be able to squeeze those important theological ideas out of Luke Acts. How do you respond to my sort of theological coping strategy with what you just said there? Well, I mean, I have, you know, it, it occurs to me that our, uh, our uh, Bible things may be, may be more interesting when we're in passages I have less invested in. Um, but, um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, uh, I've thought a lot about Acts over the years. And so have a, I have at least what I think is a fairly uh, uh, co- coherent or quick or thoroughgoing uh, pneumatology for uh, for Acts. Uh, it may be wrong, of course. So, um, like when I read the Samaritan passage in Acts uh, um, eight, uh, eight, yeah, um, you know they're they're baptized, and so they're expecting. Okay, and cue the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit. <laughs> what's wrong? There's no Holy Spirit. Um, I, I interpret that as a problem. You know, we've got a problem up here at Samaria. Yeah. Send Peter and John up here so they can lay hands on people. Peter and John go up, lay hands on them, and Holy Spirit. Yes, we're good to go. That uh, so I, I mean, I tend to see the Holy Spirit in Acts as as the event. Yeah, Baptism. Okay. You can be baptized before or after. That doesn't matter. Um, uh, repentance. Logically, it would come before Holy Spirit, but if God wants to send the Holy Spirit on you, you know the Holy Spirit's on you. I see a clean. I see the Holy Spirit associated with the cleansing of the hearts in Acts fifteen. You know He's made no difference between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. So to me, the Spirit is is it that uh, bap- okay. baptism, take or leave baptism, fair. take or leave repentance. Although logically, it, it you know, but if unless you have the Holy Spirit, you're not in. You're not. You're not here. You're not part of it. And so Simon, Simon Magus, he's gone through the motions of baptism, but his heart isn't, he's, he's not in, uh, and he never receives the Holy Spirit as far as we know. Anyway, that's my theology, my, my pneumatology of Acts. Yeah, and would you say take it or leave it, or is it more that it's, uh, well, whenever that comes in, is fine, right? The, the, it's kind of like, because it tends to be, uh, I mean, if, if repentance is... What I first heard you saying was, just to use this language from from our text in front of us, right? It's got, repent, let, let be baptized each of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If we think of, you know, uh, spirit, repentance, baptism, right? If we can think of these as like, um, connected but it's clear that the if it, i'm hearing you say there's two different ways of taking what you just said one is uh what really matters is the spirit and these are kind of like ancillary attachments that may or may not be present what i heard you initially which is kind of how you were saying at the end what i heard you initially kind of saying was more uh the sequence is inconsequential uh the the 
the spirit in, but except that the other two repentance and baptism or especially baptism as an outward sign are uh, not definitive without the, the yes. spirit. But so the sequence, wherever, however they come in the sequence, the spirit's the key marker. Is that? That's the way I would, okay. I would take this to me. The spirit is the, that's it in, in acts. That's when it really happens. I mean, baptism is not is, is important for the book of acts. So I'm not underplaying the importance of, of, of baptism. Yeah. I'm just saying it hasn't really happened in acts unless you receive the Holy spirit. And that's my, my understanding of the theology of, of acts. Um, and faith, faith is in the mix there, of course, especially when we get to um, Luke's presentation of Paul. Um, uh, so there's faith in the mix. Um, of course, I would say that, that interestingly enough, um, Luke emphasizes repentance far more than Paul himself does in his, in his <laughs> writings. Um, uh, so this is a constellation of related, related things. The most important and, and, and sine qua non one is is the Holy Spirit in my in my understanding of the theology of Acts. Yeah. So is the the promise in verse thirty nine? Would you say that the promise is the gift of the Spirit? The promise is for you and for your children. It certainly is. In in um, given in that he calls a promise of the Father, right? That's another name of the Spirit earlier in in Acts. And of course, there's a promise in Luke three uh, when John says, "I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with Holy Spirit." Yeah, because it isn't. Uh, it just says the promise is for you, verse thirty nine. Yep, and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself, or as many as call the Lord. Right? Is it? Yeah, I, I, I don't. I'm not seeing kind of like a, a silver bullet evidence yeah. in the, these verses, but that that makes sense to me. What's made sense to me is back in verse chapter one, verse four, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but sure. to wait for the fa- what the Father has promised. Yep. Okay. There you have it. And then the next, uh, which you heard from me. For John baptized mother, but you were baptized with the Holy Spirit, right? That's pretty tight. Yeah. And then even back into Luke chapter 24, when he says, Wait for the promise. 24, yeah, 49, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That seems pretty suggestive of their, their empowerment by the Spirit, right? you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, verse yep. 8. So yep. it seems that the language of promise here in 39 has pretty close resonance with the Spirit as the promise. And then it actually kind of makes almost the perfect sense of 38, not as an ordo uh, salutis, but rather as the fitting actions in face of a promise. Because what does the the crowd say in verse 37? I mean, Peter's answering a question. You know, they ask him, what do we do? <laughs> right? And he tells them, repent, be baptized. That's the part you can do. And you will receive switching into promise language, not yep. command language, right? Yep. So the command is 
And like you say, later we get further language of faith from Paul's uh, sermons, but you know, repent, believe, be baptized, right? Kind of basically the same thing Jesus was saying, right? (laughs) The kingdom is here. Repent and be baptized. Uh, Turn your life around. Um, Who knows? Maybe you'll get lucky and you'll get the Holy Spirit, right? It's kind of almost not lucky. You know what I mean? There's kind of a, because the spirit, you can't do it, right? It's not a thing you do. It's a thing that's received. Yeah. Which maybe is why just at least theologically and maybe, and I don't just mean theologically in the sense of us appropriating the text, but perhaps even in Luke's own theology, um, the reason why the Holy Spirit's the sine qua non is it's, it's the one and only thing that God himself can do. Whereas these others are human actions of receiving and responding. Uh, is that, you, you, yeah. that click with you or not? Oh yeah, absolutely. That up? Okay. In, fact, in fact, I have a PowerPoint from New Testament survey that says almost exactly okay. what you said. <laughs> okay. uh, our, our part, repentance, baptism, God's part, Holy Spirit. I mean, that's, okay. yeah. yeah. I have that, have that, I can pull up that PowerPoint. Which is why trying to splice the chronology is, is, is always going to create antinomies, uh, logically and historical and literary problems for us because, you know, divine action is not, uh, accountable to fit into the sequence of human action, right? You're act- we're actually, by, by trying to splice the Holy Spirit as one step in a sequence of human actions is attempting to like coordinate eternity and time. I mean, it's, it's like this yeah. sort of philosophical impossibility that we still manage to do all the time you, <laughs> in you our minds, you know. You mentioned Acts 10. I love the story of Cornelius. Um, I, I, I exaggerated a little bit, but... Uh, I, I sometimes have portrayed it as, you know, the Holy Spirit gets tired of P- Peter going on <laughs> preaching, says, okay, let's end this thing. And the Holy Spirit just interrupt. We interrupt this sermon with the Holy Spirit. You know? <laughs> Boom. <laughs> and uh, well, I guess the sermon's over, folk. Yeah. And doesn't he baptize him then? Yep. He says, what keeps us from baptizing these people? Yeah, right. <laughs> right, right, right. And interestingly enough, I mean, I don't want to make too much out of this, but... Um, in this text we're looking at right now, it actually does not narrate the receiving of the gift of the Holy Spirit among the 3,000 who were added to their yeah. number that day. That's interesting. That's not to deny what you were saying, which is that the Spirit's the beginning, because that would still be true. Because to be added to their number, I mean, that just simply means they're joining the community, right? The 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 full kind of movement of the spirit, they might still be seeking, right? We don't know. The point, I'm, I'm, I'm attempting to make an agnostic point rather than a definitive point that uh, repent and be baptized. These are actions that can be very explicit, very public. And the reception of the Holy Spirit is precisely what they wait upon. So, I mean, there's no reason to not believe that that's happening right then and there. But uh, of course, the exact evidence by way of signs and wonders is probably not happening in all 3000. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is something that I think, I don't know what Chris, Chris bounds might disavow, you know, this conversation, but um, one of the things that he uh, helped me with theologically um, in, in, in the face of my holiness uh, upbringing, not that there was any, there was nothing. It's not, I'm not faulting my holiness upbringing, but the idea that really um at least entire sanctification is, is God's schedule. You know, there was a tendency with the Phoebe Palmer, you know, tradition to have a kind of name it, claim it approach to entire sanctification. You know, if, if I go to the altar 
ding, I should be entirely sanctified. Um, and we can we can take that with conversion. I mean, we take this back to uh, initial mm. uh, receiving of the Holy Spirit too. If it's if it's truly God's timing as to when the Holy Spirit uh, comes upon you, then we we should not view this as a um, as a uh, ex opera as as a kind of automatic thing. If I say the magic words, the Holy Spirit's going to uh, to fill me, yeah, if, you, if you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. Here. No, I, I hear it exactly. And the, I mean, the narrator's actually very, um, for as signs and wonders as Luke can be, his descriptions are often very reserved. I mean, verse 41, so then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day were added, about 3000 souls. Okay. Like that's that's it. This is nothing. I mean it's it's not very it's not doesn't detailed. mention the holy spirit. It's, yep. There's no additional information. It's very uh terse. And and again that fits Luke. I mean, I, I I say as if I know Luke's style, but I mean, I spent enough time in gospel comparison to kind of notice when Mark has like three ver three verbs in a row and a couple subordinate clauses mm-hmm. and like Matthew will cut one of the subordinate clauses and take it to two verbs and then Luke will just have like one participle right like he's always just like um, yeah he just has a preference for simple clean don't say too much I mean there's a good. there's a whole kind of whenever there's any kind of confusion uh, in the textual tradition, like w- which women were at the tomb and you know what I mean? Like, and, and who was at the cross and were they the same women? You know, like Luke just says, and the women and doesn't list them until chapter 24. Right. And you can, I at least get the sense that he has a kind of preface to like, if let's just keep it as clear as we can keep it simple, not say too much. Now, maybe I've read too much into Luke's style, but in acts, of course, we don't get the comparative work. Sure. But with that comparative work in the back of our minds, you can kind of, you can see a version of this story went around that goes, and then this happened and this happened and this, you know, like um, really going into the, the detail, whereas he just wants to kind of wrap it up real quick and say 3000, you know, uh, which seems to be an allusion back to the 3000 that were killed uh, at the, at the mountain uh, in what Exodus, uh, forgetting the chapter, uh, is it? I don't know the chapter. Uh, 18, 19, 20, somewhere in there. Uh, the, um, on Pentecost, you know, at the, at the uh, 50 days after um, the, the Passover. Passover. Yeah, so the, the, at the giving of the law, which is what Pentecost celebrates. We didn't get into a ton of that. But, I mean, the 3,000 yeah. here is this hot, you know, he almost wants to draw attention, I think, to that particular symbolic number rather than into the weeds of individual uh, – you know, signs and wonders, right? He mentions signs and wonders a few verses later, but he doesn't tell us what they are, right? He wants us to see, see God is restoring his people, right? That's the point. Um, and so repent and be baptized. Well, I just got cooking because I'm starting to preach. Well, we should take a quick break and come back and do some sermon starters. Sound good? Okay. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Ken Shank, and we're looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 
41, the, uh, the, the last line of Peter's sermon and, and then the response uh, from the people. Um, let's explore some uh, sermon starters. Where, where might we go with, uh, with this text if we were uh, preparing a, a sermon or a teaching uh, on this passage? What, what are some initial thoughts you might have about where to go with this? Well, certainly um, uh, preaching Christology, preaching the Lordship of Christ, preaching the, the, that God vindicated Christ, um, that God anointed him and made him Lord. They, they thought that they had beat him. They thought that losing was victory, um, but Christ's, uh, Christ's death was victory, um, and he is Lord. Let the whole house of Israel know. Um, so, I mean, I, th- I think, uh, I'm, I'm not, uh, my, I'm not really wired. I should be, maybe I'm not, I'm not wired to preach, um, dogmatic theology necessarily without, um, without some sort of, uh, application. Um, sure, I'm, yeah, not, me neither. I'm not as, not as good as Bart was at that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, although I don't know, yeah. but, um, but I certainly believe that we should preach Christology. Um, so I think. I think for me, I need to, I need to be ready to preach verse thirty-six. Jesus is Lord and Christ. I don't know whether you, how would you preach that? Yeah, no, I think it's actually just. So whether this would be the heart of the sermon or uh, just one of the moves in a sermon, I think a even just some brief commentary on the meaning of these two words, right? This is. You know, that in his exaltation, God has made Jesus, Kurios, you know, and Christos. And like, just to, it's going to be crucial uh, to, even if only in passing in a sermon where the emphasis is elsewhere, to just just comment a little for people. What do these words mean? Do you know what I mean? Uh, uh, What does it mean that that, uh, Caesar would be regarded as Lord? Right, so this is right. This has to do with his authority, right, over all things. And and maybe this is too cute by half, but the the notion of both Lord and Christ gives a kind of sense of Jew and Gentile, right? Almost kind of hiding in there, right? Uh, Because Messiah and Christ would have resonance for um, the Jews but lordship would be relevant for even non-Jews, right? So it's almost like hidden in this sermon is the practical implications of that do not become clear to Peter for, you know, eight more chapters, right? <laughs> but uh, but the, 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 the theological and even Christological basis, the ground, uh, uh, the, the truth from which that practical implication flows is already there from the beginning, from the very first sermon, the ground is already laid. Um, and even that can kind of help to kind of raise some questions and even kind of say, what are, what are the, sometimes, I mean, this, this is a defensive doing a little bit of dogmatic uh, pre or doctrinal preaching, right. Is to say, sometimes the stuff we believe we don't yet know, how to apply it, right? It may yeah. have applications and implications we do not yet foresee. So it's still worth attending to, even if briefly. That's just a quick thought. Yeah. And I, uh, this is a, a slightly off track thought, but I, I'll mention it because it ran through my head. 
um, when he says, let the whole house of Israel know. Yeah. So at this particular point in time, the whole house of Israel isn't on board with Jesus being Lord yeah. in Christ. And so again, I, I don't personally equate the church with, uh, with Israel, but, but is there a metaphorical parallel in the sense that the visible church, that is the, the institutional church or the, the, that which presents itself as the church may not always have Jesus as Lord and Christ uh, within it, uh, that there mm. can, that, that there can be a, a smugness on the part of Christendom yeah. um, to think that it is um, obviously right when in fact it, Jesus is not Lord and Christ of, of it. That was another thought that ran well i mean that that speaks to the nature of the text itself that says this jesus whom you crucified um this and then the immediate reaction of they were cut to the heart and this is another kind of homiletical question that we need to ask is you know what does it mean to preach on a passage uh that talks about the response to preaching (laughs) this is you know like is my task to uh, uh, get other people, get my audience to be cut to the heart or, 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 or not, you know, uh, is my sermon meant to perform the same function or, or am I called to, to do something, uh, that may have a very different reaction because we're in a different context. Uh, that's a kind of, that's a judgment call. I can't make for every, every preacher. Having said that, if every single sermon I've ever preached, um, if, no one has ever been pierced to the heart by what I've said. I, I got to be asking if I've been pulling punches on the gospel, right? I mean, that again, maybe this particular sermon doesn't need to do that. But, uh, but of course, interestingly enough, it's, it, he doesn't say anything other than just reminding them that they themselves are the ones who were yelling crucify him not too much before this, which goes back to what you were saying, which is to ask, you know, even we as the church who are not identical with Israel, but nevertheless – whom have we rejected? What have we ignored? What have we resisted that is in fact the work of God in our midst? Right? I mean, that's a tough question to ask. Um, and that would to be name. fired. Yeah, it, it, it sure could. Yeah, it sure could. The, the, you mentioned the whole house of Israel. That makes me think of verse, uh, verse 39. I've always wanted to preach a sermon that emphasized and I, I'd, I'd bring on board all the stuff that we've said, but to mention the notion of the promises for you and your children and from all who are far off, this notion of the gospel coming to us and then for the generations to come after us and for those who are far away. And that even when we are coming to faith, it's in anticipation of others who might come to faith in and through our relational connections and that sort of thing. I don't know. I just, that allusion to, I, I, again, I don't know if that is an anticipation of the Gentile mission without Peter realizing it or a reference to the diaspora, right? The, the Jews that are far off that aren't in Jerusalem. I don't know. Or, or us. Right. I have other, I have other sheep that are not a part of this flock. John 10, Jesus says, right. This kind of, I pray for those who will believe later. Yeah. 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 John 17. Yeah. So I mean, you could almost, um, 
And, and it's very fitting, especially because, you know, you can have the thought of Peter's own journey later coming to realize the meaning of the things he said <laughs> here. We already had one of those with the kind of Lord and Christ and um, the, the business with the, the spirit. As far as he knows, you could even say, I, I mean, I'm, this is maybe too, too neat of a three point sermon, right? But you've got, you've got the Christology of the Lord and Christ, but what that really implies, right? The Lordship over all the world and not just the Messiah of Israel um, is maybe not yet fully clear to the apostles. Second, then in, in 37 and 38, in terms of the pneumatology is, well, obviously you, you repent and get baptized and then you get the Holy Spirit, right? It, he, he'll later come to realize that it's not so simple as that. The Spirit might come before those things. The Spirit might not come automatically. So, so you could do some kind of foreshadowing here. Um, and then in 39, the realization that actually this is going to be, we're in this for the long haul. Again, they may have expected, oh, he's going to be coming back within a couple months, right? But actually this is, this is for those who are far off in time and space. And then that brings it home to you, the audience. We are the inheritors of this promise, right? I don't know. I don't know how that clicks with you, but kind of like really playing with, he knows not what he speaks. I'm thinking of, uh, I actually have it up on my wall cause it's one of my favorite moments. Uh, when, uh, when, uh, in Mark, when Peter says, let's make three tents here. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? and, and, and it's, and the Mark's version, again, this is scrubbed out in, in, in Matthew and Luke, but, uh, in Mark's version, it says, uh, he knew not what to say because he was, they were so afraid. Yeah. Right. And the phrase, the so afraid doesn't appear in, in Matthew and Luke, but um, it's almost like actually recognizing that there may be a little fear and confusion in Peter here. And even though he's preaching with boldness on the outside, the inside, he might not know exactly what he's saying <laughs> and what this yeah. really implies. He's caught up in a moment. And well, there's uh, a, yeah, there's a reading of Peter and acts. That's very, very humbling. Um, when you think about it, you know, because you can read Peter as, thinking he's a little more important than he is um, at certain, certain places. Yeah. Uh, you all know that the Lord chose me to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, nobody, <laughs> nobody thinks of Peter as the apostle to the Gentiles. Yeah. 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 Uh, that sort of thing. <laughs> or, and then, and then even after, you know, again, we're mixing different uh, biblical books, but even after acts 10, he has this thing at Antioch, like, should I not eat with these Gentiles? Well, okay. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't eat with these Gentiles. I mean, um, very, very humbling. Yeah. Because who of us is better than Peter? Yeah, no, I think we could, we could explore that a little bit of, have you ever said something you didn't really realize, you know, uh, what you were committing yourself to, right? Um, well, I mean, anyone who's married, of course, no, (laughs) (laughs) you know, these vows, uh, uh, the full implications of what you're signing yourself up for are not always clear. And, and that's even relevant even to repentance, you know, cause the 300 who were added that, not that day, you know, a lot of them were, you know, most likely uh, had mixed motives and weren't entirely clear what they were signing up for. Uh, I think that's, that's a possibility of a sermon. Maybe, maybe that doesn't really, Maybe that's more just a sermon for uh, a devotional thought for a preacher to remember, you know, what the, what they're getting themselves into. But 
First, we haven't mentioned is uh, verse 40, save yourself from this crooked generation. Very interesting line to me. I mean, he, he's talking to Jews who mm-hmm. who live among Jews, although, I mean, there are people there from all over, but what does he mean by crooked generation? Does he mean the house of Israel? Does he mean the Roman empire? Is it is it because of the last line of 36, this Jesus whom you crucified, is it connected to... This is the crooked generation. Yeah, the one who who crucified Jesus, right? Let's go here. That might be it. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if I skipped it because I don't like it. Uh, 36 ends on such a high note, um, even though it's 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 a hard word, whom you crucified, nevertheless, the one that God has made. It's the emphasis is on God's uh and maybe a little collective guilt here also, because I'm sure that yeah. I mean, these, these are people who are coming in, from, I mean, from all over the world for Pentecost. Probably most of them weren't even there That's uh, right. when, when Passover happened. But. So be rescued from this perverse generation. So be, then all who have received this word, what a word to receive. Yeah. And of course, um, you know, every once in a while, you might you might be in a situation where someone has no idea how to how to join this Christian movement. Yeah. Um, you know, I okay, I I I I believe that Jesus is who you say he is. How do I? What do I do? I mean, there's a nice little. I mean, it's not the only formula. There's a nice little verse to be able to quote in verse 38. Yeah, it works out nice because there really are kind of, I mean, it's not four actions, but there are four elements in in 38. And I mentioned off uh, off the recording that I already did next week's podcast with Dave Smith. And right. spoiler alert, it's the next passage. and And we talk about, there's four elements there, which is very convenient not to overdo this, but where it talks about what they devote themselves to. And it's four things. It's the apostles preaching, uh, fellowship, breaking of bread and the prayers. Right. And here you have a similar kind of like fourfold of repentance, baptism, forgiveness, and receiving the Holy spirit. Right now it's not exactly identical because there's really just kind of two human actions that can be done there. You could add faith and be baptized. Yeah. But bring faith in from other and, and the connection of baptism and faith with forgiveness. Right. Um, Because the reference to forgiveness there is, I think important to recognize that, that we're being forgiven. Um, And then the openness to receive. Yeah. There's a confession of, 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 uh, there's a confession involved with repentance. There's a confession involved with faith. Confess, repent, believe, receive. There it is. Done. Isn't that, <laughs> that was the, that was the fourfold. I, uh, but interestingly enough, even that, the phrase confess your sins, repent from them, believe uh, in the work of Christ for you and then receive and sometimes that was received the Holy Spirit. Of course, that fourth one is the one that is the most out of our control, right? It's yeah. receive means you open up your hands. And I feel like there is a really powerful sermon. And I feel like, man, I, I'm, 
I, I, I was, I was playing it safe earlier and now I'm going to push it a little harder to say like, if there's not a little cut into the heart, this it's a wasted opportunity. I mean, this is a chance. This sermon is a chance to say, you know, to invite people to repent, right? To, if they've not yet be baptized, to, to seek that out, you know, if it's not baptism week, fine. But um, to say, hey, sign up for that. Let's talk about that. Um, and then it's that receive, because he says you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? And I, I can't help but, this is bad radio, but it's, it's visual, but I'm holding out my hands like an open hand to receive the Spirit, right? Like, what is our posture? Are we wanting to receive what God is going to do, right? Or do we have our arms folded, which is almost the image you can think of at the beginning, like, hmm, these guys are drunk at three in the morning, or at, at nine in the morning, right? Um, what does it mean? And to be cut to the heart is, 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 is an openness, right? To, to what do I need to do? And, and Peter's kind of two-sided answer of, well, there is something to do, but in a way, um, God is the one who has to do the most important thing. So all we do is receive and that's open hands. And maybe that's all repenting is. Maybe that's all baptism is, is just a posture of receptivity to the work of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how that clicks with you or clicks with Luke's theology, but I feel like there's a sermon that could brew from that. And I, and I, again, I, I don't want to sound, uh, I, I don't want to, on the other, I don't want to sound too formulaic. On the other hand, I don't want to overreact to my background or to mm-hmm. kind of, uh, kind of trite triteness to some evangelicalism, but but I could see that you having a baptismal service that's arranged uh, where you spend the first segment of the service uh, uh, in repentance and, mm-hmm. and confessing, and you spend you know a second part of the service on faith uh, and confession of faith, and then I think I would put again I'm just brainstorming a possible service. You could have your baptism perhaps as the third. Uh, part of the service, and then focus on receiving the Holy Spirit in the in the final part of the service. Anyway, just a thought. No, I love it, and a, and a laying of hands, perhaps, or yeah, a yeah. long time of yeah. prayer. And I mean, if you if you especially those who work closely with the worship team. I mean, some churches it's like you do the music, and then the sermon does their own thing, right? But if you're really working closely, you can really have a key song that goes with each of those four moments. Yeah, kind of spread it out. I love it, man. I, I think, wow. So confession and repentance, you know, in the opening, uh, and there faith could be confession. a, yeah. And then the confession of faith, uh, baptism and the gift of the Holy spirit. And if you wanted for Bang whatever reason, him. depending who you're working with, uh, depending on the community you're in, maybe you do a remembering of your baptism during sure. that, you know, cause you could use this as a good structure for a, for a baptism remembrance sure. uh, a service. Um, no, I think that's a really cool idea. I like that. I, you and I are probably a little more, uh, uh, you and I have, uh, talked, uh, uh, worship structures more uh, enough over the years that uh, that's a place where you and I can think creatively about uh, what you can do, you know, and the idea that you have to have just one standalone sermon as opposed to some brief teachings that are spread sure. out over a service. I, with my attention span, I love Gen, that. Gen Z know. will love it. Uh, yeah. Well, I don't know, man. I, <laughs> I'm Gen, I'm Gen X, but I'm a, I'm Gen ADD, you know? So like, <laughs> to me, 
anything to break it up. Uh, not that we just haven't finished talking for an hour straight, but it was two people, <laughs> right? Uh, so for us, it's just a conversation. Well, thanks so much for giving an hour uh, plus of your time uh, to studying the Word of God and hanging out with me and for the sake of our listeners. I really, really appreciate it, Ken. Always fun. Yeah. Oh, well, with that said, I say thanks uh, to you, Ken. Thanks to all our listeners. Thanks to Todd and Eric for all their great production work and made them do a lot of extra uh, with this one. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And with that, we say have a good preach and a great week. <laughs>